Our scripture reading this morning is from Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6, and then also from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, 1 through 6. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Can't find a more pleasant person to read about a passage that deals with the wrath of God, so. <laughs> Thank you for that. Good morning, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Hi to everybody who's online as well. Uh, glad to see you all this morning. Um, probably some of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards before, yeah? Jonathan Edwards, he was this 18th century preacher. Uh, he came from kind of the Puritan strain, strain of Christianity. And uh, he was, interestingly enough, he was the grandfather of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel, like all these crazy connections that are happening here. Uh, he started, Jonathan Edwards started at Yale when he was 12 years old and immediately started studying John Locke, John Locke being an incredibly influential philosopher who still affects our worldviews today and how we understand most of the things that we bring in to our, our lives, or, you know, the data that we bring into our lives Edwards was also a significant influence in the Great Awakening. So in the, in the 18th century in America, there was this Great Awakening. The Holy Spirit was doing incredible things, and people were turning to God, and it was a very dramatic moment in American history, and Edwards was a big part of that. Now all that sounds really great. Edwards wasn't great in all ways. Uh, he had slaves, and he actually advocated for slavery as well. He also, in 1741, wrote and delivered a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard about that. But this is actually the reason why I'm telling you anything about Edwards at all, because we're in our series right now called The Emotions of God, and the emotion that we're dealing with today is the wrath of God. Now, if you've been following along in our big read, that's great. You probably anticipated that this was coming. If you haven't been following along, I want to encourage you to pick up one of the books out in the lobby. It's a book by David Lamb called The Emotions of God. We're going to interview David later on in this series, but you can get his book out in the lobby for half the price here that you could get it anywhere else. Jennifer's waving hers up right there. There you go. 
It's only 10 bucks out there. It's 18 if you were to go uh, and try and find it anywhere else. So you can track along with what we're doing here. Last week, we talked about the hatred of God. Ooh, this week is the wrath of God, and next week is the jealousy. Then we're going to get to some more positive things, like the joy and compassion and the love of God. But we recognize that this too, you know, there could be some triggering things. In fact, I'm going to read some things today that will be very difficult probably for you to hear. And if that's causing you to need to process through those emotions a little bit more, we're going to have additional resources. We're doing some podcast interviews with therapists uh, that will help us think through some of these emotions. Uh, you are welcome to contact a pastor as well. And we also have a list of other resources that we can help you with. As we're going through this series, there are a few things that we really want to keep in mind as we're going along. And we've already been talking about them for the last couple of weeks. The first one is that what we think about God matters. In fact, it matters a whole lot. John referenced A.W. Tozer, who said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you because it can shape the rest of your life. So we want to keep that in mind, and we believe God is good. We have to remember that, especially when we're talking about these more difficult emotions, that God is good. Number two, we want to remember that we can't make God in our image. So if we project the way that we experience our emotions onto God, we're probably going to have a distorted image of God. Instead, we are to be formed into his image. And the third thing is that we are relational beings and God is a relational being. And so we are, excuse me, emotional being. So we need to talk to God with our emotions in an emotional way. We're emotional, he's emotional. We can work with him through those emotions. So that's the series that we're in right now. And today it is the wrath of God, which brings us back to sinners in the hands of an angry God, which I had heard about ever since I came to faith in my mid-20s. And throughout college, I had heard about it. I knew that it was always really influential, but I'd never read it before. And so I thought, well, if I'm preparing to talk about the wrath of God, I should probably read this sermon. And so I read it for the first time in pre preparation for this sermon. And you know, as you maybe can guess just from the title, the sermon definitely characterizes God in an angry way. It gives God an angry character. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from you, for you here from the sermon. They're not easy quotes to listen to, just be forewarned of that. Here's the first one. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. Whew. That's not as bad as this next one that I'm <laughs> going to read here for you. I hesitate to read this because I don't want it to leave an impression of who God is to you. And hopefully throughout this time, we'll correct this image. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked 
His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. We got, <laughs> we got the tone set for this morning? Or <laughs> I mean, the reality is this was an incredibly influential sermon, and it still is an incredibly influential sermon in certain circles of Christianity. And it's because of this that we end up having a distorted view of God. Now, all those quotes, they have to be taken in context. You know, I pulled them out of context. There's a whole sermon in which they come and. And uh, Edwards, his main point is basically, hey, look, we are completely dependent on the grace of God, which I can get behind that main point. And there's a whole historical context. He's, he's delivering this to a certain group of people at a certain time. And at that time, sermons like that were more common. And plus, he's just using some inflammatory language for effect. And preachers never do anything <laughs> like that ever. The unfortunate thing about the sermon, though, is that he assigns a particular characteristic to God, that he is angry. And this characteristic actually plays on our fears. Because we might ask ourselves, is God angry with me? Does God like me? Is God hell-bent on punishing me? Pun intended there, by the way. Things like this have played into why we often have a distorted view of God's wrath. We don't often think about Jesus in that way, though, necessarily. And that's why I chose this passage from Mark. I'm going to read through it again here, and then we're going to revisit and just have some touch points through this passage as we talk about God's wrath. So if you've got a Bible or a device, I'd encourage you to open it up. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he, Jesus, went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about why sometimes we have a struggle with this idea of the wrath of God. I mean, we have to think about it. The Bible talks about it, right? And maybe some of us, we might overemphasize it like Jonathan Edwards 
and assign a whole characteristic to God, or we may de-emphasize it completely. We might sweep it under the rug or make some excuses for it or just dismiss it altogether. There's that temptation that exists. One of the things that I think is a challenge for us is the language around it. Language is really important because language shapes our understanding of the world. And the word wrath has religious connotations for us specifically, unless you're a Star Trek fan, of course. <laughs> but in English, wrath means extreme anger or rage. Now, in Hebrew and in Greek, the, the languages of the Bible, the words used that are translated into wrath don't always mean extreme anger or rage. In fact, that's what we see right here in this passage in Mark, where it says in verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger. The Greek word for anger is orge. It's a really common word for all kinds of anger, and it's used throughout the Bible. And even in the Hebrew Bible, when it was translated into Greek, they used the word orge a lot. And in fact, it's often translated into the word wrath. Like in our passage from Nahum, which has the word orge in it twice. Do you see what I'm getting at here? The word wrath is really just talking about anger. Which maybe you think that's just, you know, splitting hairs like this. I'm not mad. Just very, very angry. <laughs> For me, though, personally, it's helpful to understand anger instead of extreme anger or rage. I don't understand extreme rage very much, but I do understand anger because I experience anger regularly. And this aspect of language is good for us as well in kind of the second issue, which is to bridge a gap between how we view God and how he's described in the Old Testament often and how we view Jesus, often how he's described in the New Testament. We have to understand that there is an incredible continuity in the Bible. And Jesus, the Son of God, who is the exact representation of God in the flesh, has all of the same character that God does in the entire Bible. So the anger that God has in the Old Testament is the same anger that Jesus has in the New Testament. He looked around at them in anger. He stared them down with the same orge that God has in the Old Testament. The third problem is that we come to this with a human lens. And this is probably the biggest challenge that we have. Remember, we can't make God into our own image. The Bible teaches us so much about God and his character, and we can study diligently and we can learn about that. But when we just bring our understanding of anger to our perception of God, that's going to change things a little bit. When I read about God's anger and I think about an angry parent or an angry boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or I think about an angry boss, that's going to distort 
our image of God in understanding who he is and why he gets angry. Our view of God, remember, is the most important thing about us. Now, personally, I don't really like anger. I grew up in a household where there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of yelling and there was physical violence. I don't, I'm not comfortable around other people who exhibit a lot of anger. And personally, I think I'm a fairly mellow person. I'm not an angry person, except that I am. I get, I get angry because I'm in relationship with people, or maybe it's just something more like this. I'm not angry. I'm happiness challenged. <laughs> the truth is, though, I get angry because I am in relationship with other people. My, uh, this week, my six-year-old son, Caleb, uh, he's good friends with uh, Seth and Becca Overby, their six-year-old son, Jones. They live life together. They're in school together. They're in a life group together. They're at church together. They spend a lot of time together. And this last week, there were some hurt feelings there. Caleb, my son, hurt Jones's feelings. And after they, he, Jones had processed it for a little bit, he came up to Caleb and he said, Caleb, did you know that you hurt my feelings? And Caleb's like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And there was still some tension there, but they were trying to work it out. And I happened to be standing there and I was like, hey, guys, look, you're really good buddies. You can get through this. You're going to be okay, and you can have a stronger relationship on the other end. It's going to take some forgiveness, and it's going to take some change in how you, how you talk, to, talk to one another so there aren't as many hurt feelings. But you know what? All of my good friends that I've ever had in life, we've had those times where I've made somebody anger, angry or I've hurt their feelings. And Caleb, my son, he goes, Every single one? Like, yeah. <laughs> Every single one. Because the more in relationship you are with people, the more likely that is to happen. And in fact, here's one of the most important things I'd love for you just to take away from this, that real relationships experience anger. Real relationships experience anger. Anger, that's something that we've all felt before. We all deal with anger on some level. I get angry when I don't get my way or when somebody gets in my way, particularly when I'm driving. <laughs> or I get angry when my kids aren't listening to what I'm saying. Or I get angry when Steph's and my uh, priorities or our personalities are in conflict. I get angry when I'm stressed out, and then there are a lot of other sensory things around me, like a lot of noise. And trust me, a house of six people, four kids, it's not always quiet. I get angry then. I get angry when I assume other people's motives, when I assume their thinking may be the worst about me, and sometimes that can make me angry. Most of my anger comes from selfishness. When I'm not, things aren't working out the way that I want them to work out. And most of the time, I think I'm justified in that because I'm mostly right, right? <laughs> mostly, thank you for throwing that out there. I appreciate that, yeah. 
<laughs> Even when we think about a just cause and get angry on a just cause, there can be selfishness that's kind of embroiled or entangled in there as well. Or sometimes we feel anger because of hurt and trauma in our lives. You've probably heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. When we experience hurt, and I know this has happened for me, sometimes I turn that hurt into anger towards somebody else. Or sometimes we use anger as a mask to cover over some of our other emotions like sadness or being afraid. Uh, this is something uh, in a, um, uh, one of the therapists that we will um, interview, Tristan Collins, talks about uh, in her book. We, um, we're, we're better or we feel better off feeling anger because it's a powerful emotion. It's a lot easier to experience a powerful emotion than to feel sadness or fear. So we use it as a mask. And often, we let it fester and grow within us until it becomes something really ugly. And sometimes that ugliness is just in us, or sometimes it ends up being expressed outwardly toward other people when we lash out in anger, like this. The cutest little angry rant ever right there. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this is what happens in life. I've got two family members that I'm very close to. We'll call them family member A and family member B. And these family members were getting along pretty well until 12 years ago. Family member A said five words to family member B. And those hurt family member B. And family member B resolved in their heart to never talk to family member A again. So that means 12 years later, family member B doesn't come to any family gatherings because family member A is there. And there is no way to talk to family member B about that because there is so much turmoil in those conversations. When we hold anger in like that, it becomes a poison for us, and it eats us away. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it say you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you're angry at your brother or sister, you're already faced the judgment of God. Why? Because it's a poison in us that leads to death, just like murder. Or like Jesus' brother James wrote to the churches, he says in James chapter 1, verse 20, Humanity's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. We think our anger will produce something. It will cause pain for somebody else or it will cause repentance for them. But it very often does nothing but hurt us and affect us the most. So with all that picture of anger, of human anger, if we take that into our view of God's anger, no reason, or there's no, there's no wonder why we would be troubled then when we read about God's anger. But we can't make him in our image. We're to be formed into his image because surprise, surprise, God's anger is not like human's 
anger, but it is real. And so we have to address it. We've got to talk about it. So what is it that makes God angry? Well, there's a lot of nuance to that conversation. There's a lot that could be said, but I'll give you three things that are kind of the primary things that we see in Scripture that make God angry. The first one is when his people don't trust him. So looking back at Mark chapter 2, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. The some of them is the Pharisees. We get that from just before this in chapter 2. These are the covenant people of God who know the scripture, who have been anticipating the promised Messiah that God was going to send to redeem his people. And when God fulfills that promise, they can't trust that this is actually the way that it is. They can't trust God. And in fact, Jesus, they're looking and watching. They're waiting for an opportunity. They're eyeing him and looking for an opportunity to see him trip up in some way. This is kind of like what we see in the very first uh, instance of God being angry with somebody in Scripture. And if you've got our big read, it'll point this out in the chapter on the wrath of God. For Moses was the one who first experienced the anger of God. And it's when he first encountered God as the burning bush in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. And God appeared to him and said, I'm going to have you go to, with me to Egypt to rescue my people out of Egypt and to redeem them and take them to a promised land so that they can be my people. And five times Moses said, uh, no, not me, please. I think you've got somebody else. Because he didn't trust God. He didn't trust that God was going to be with him, that had enough, he had enough power to do what he said he was going to do. The second big reason why God gets angry is because of injustice. So look at verse 4 in our passage on Mark. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He's asking a very pointed question there as there's a person who is suffering in their midst. But the people he's talking to are so fixated on following the law exactly that they can't even have compassion on a human being that is suffering and needs some help. Now, God gave them the law, but the law was always in the context of mercy and compassion. And even within the law, you see mercy and compassion. So back to Exodus here. After God redeems his people, brings them to Mount Sinai, he says to them in, Ex, uh, in Exodus chapter 22, he's giving the law, and this is part of the law. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Now, that could be hard for us to hear, God saying that he's going to kill someone. But something I like to point out there is that God doesn't kill anybody with a sword. That happens in the context of humanity. 
So I think what God does here is he says, when you're unjust, unjust, and you're unjust to widows and orphans, I'm going to remove my protection from you. And the inevitable outcome is going to happen, that there will be violence among you, and you will die. And then your wife will be a widow, and your children will be orphans. So injustice is one of those things that God doesn't like. The other one is idolatry. Idolatry is when we look to anything but God for our provision and our protection and our power. And this is something that humanity has done from the very beginning and we continue to do. Rather than trusting God for our provision, protection, and power, we'll look to anything else. And that's back to Exodus again. There's the story of the golden calf, right? God brings them out of Egypt and then he's giving instruction up on Mount Sinai to Moses. Moses is up on the mountain too for 40 days and the people just lose their minds and they take off all their jewelry and they melt it down and they make a golden calf out of it and they call it Yahweh, the covenant name of God and say, hey, this golden calf is what brought us out of Egypt that provided us what we needed that gave us provision, protection, and power. And this is God's response to that in Exodus chapter 32. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." We're going to come back to that passage here in just a moment. But we got to get to the heart of the matter here that I really want you to understand. Those passages can be hard to read. But the reality is God has entered into relationships with people. He's made covenants. He's made, he's made promises. He's been faithful to those promises. He's rescued his people and he hasn't been at a distance at all. He comes in and enters into relationship. And if you remember, real relationships experience anger. And a relational God is going to experience anger. And in the context of all of these Exodus passages, God has already done so much for the people of Israel. He's been committed to them and faithful to them, but they have rejected him. They have spurned him. There's something else uh, for us to consider here as well. That comes from Mark. Chapter five, or excuse me, verse five here. He, Jesus, looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. I love that aspect of his hand being completely restored because I think that's actually a picture of how God's anger works. God's anger is not a rage. God's anger is not out of control. God's anger is not vindictive or spiteful. God's anger isn't a poison in him like it can be for us. But God's anger is purposeful. It's intentional. And it's actually meant to bring about restoration with people 
and to deal with evil and sin. You remember last week, John talked about how God hates evil and sin, and his anger is one of the ways that he then deals with anger and sin. The reality is for a relational God, if he entered into a real relationship with his people, a covenant relationship, and was basically uh, how Hosea the prophet compares it, he was cheated on, he was spurned, he was rejected by his people, if he didn't get angry, then it would mean he didn't care. But he does care. I got this quote from Abraham Heschel. He's a Jewish rabbi and scholar. He says, his wrath, God's wrath, can be unbearably dreadful, yet it is but the expression and instrument of his eternal concern. He gets angry because he's in a relationship where he cares. Heschel uh, he got, uh, that quote comes from his book called The Prophets. And I remember when I read that in college, I could not put that book down. It really is an amazing book. And in that book, he kind of talks about, he uh, elaborates this thing he calls the theology of pathos, um, which is, there's a whole lot to it, but if I were to sum it up in any way, I would say that it is that God allows himself to be affected by his creation by people, that he doesn't stand at a far distance, completely immutable, unchangeable, unaffected, but he actually enters in and allows himself to be affected by his creation. And that goes back to our golden calf incident that I said we would go back to, where God says, leave me alone, let them have their way, I'm gonna take you, Moses, and make you into a great nation. And Moses says, no, God, please don't. He intercedes on behalf of the Israelites, and God responds to that. The repercussions that he said were going to happen didn't happen. He responded to Moses, and then he went back into his faithful covenant with Israel. This is also what we see in Mark uh, as well, chapter 3. Go back to verse 5. I know I've read this. Verse here a lot already, but it says, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. That deeply distressed is the word lupeo. It means grieved. He was saddened. He was grieved by what he was experiencing. Why? because he loved the Pharisees, because they were his covenant people that he had come to redeem, and he was grieved by how they were responding to him and to this man who was in need. Anger isn't the primary feeling there. Grieving is the primary feeling, and anger goes along with it. Anger doesn't drive the actions of God. Love and care and compassion and mercy and grief for his people drive the actions of God. But anger doesn't drive. Speaking of anger and driving, (laughs) me when the car in front is going the speed limit. Someone alluded to me having too many cat memes in here. I'm sorry. 
Let's go back to God's character then. And let's return to Jonathan Edwards and to his sermon. That's part of the primary problem that I have with Jonathan Edwards' sermon. I mean, there's the inflammatory language, which is really hard to hear. But it's more so that he gives God, he assigns to God a particular character, that he is angry. He is an angry God, and everything in him is just trying to hold back his anger. When we become fixated on any one aspect of who God is, we're probably going to have a distorted view of, of who he is. We want to continually grow in a more fuller, uh, fuller understanding of who God is and his character. But in particular, if we get really fixated on the anger of God, we're going to have a very distorted view of who he is. Because anger isn't God's character. That's not part of the core of who he is. In fact, part of the core of his character is that he is slow to anger. So let's go back to Exodus again here, where God is revealing himself to Moses. Chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, which is actually Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That verse is quoted in the Bible, repeated in the Bible, more than any other verse in all of Scripture. Why? Because it's so core and fundamental to who God is, and the biblical authors want us to understand who God is in his character. So they keep returning back to this same passage again and again, saying God is rich in faithful love. He is slow to anger. He's gracious and compassionate. And we're actually going to talk about this, uh, this verse next week, so I don't want to get into it too much here. But I do want you to know that's the core aspect of who God is. And so when you're reading through Scripture and you're struggling with the anger of God, if you're seeing the anger of God, I want you to come back to this passage as an anchor point for you, an anchor that will hold you to the true character of God. Or better yet, return to Jesus. Turn to Jesus in those times. In our passage here, Jesus, he's feeling anger. He's feeling grief. It is the anger and the grief of God. God has consistently been faithful to his people, has made promises, has rescued them, has fulfilled all of his promises, has sent Jesus in this time, but they still don't trust him. They still reject him. They still spurn him just as a spouse feels when they're rejected by their other. But Jesus steps in and he receives all of the repercussions of humanity's waywardness. You see, God's anger is sometimes but rarely directly applied to people. More often, it's like that passage in Exodus where God's anger is actually him 
withholding his protection and letting humanity take its natural course, which is one of violence and hatred and ultimately of death. And that's what Jesus experienced. He was brutally beaten and tortured and crucified. He took on all of the violence and the hatred that humanity had to offer through its natural outworking, its natural outcome, and stepped in for us to experience all of that anger. Now, this is a really important aspect of making a distinction between human anger and God's anger. Human anger leads to that violence and that hatred and that death. It leads to the poison that can form within us. But God's anger leads to life and restoration and hope. And that's what we see in Jesus. Why? Because God's character is that of love. His character is not that of anger, even if he experiences anger. Paul wrote to the Roman church. He said, verse five, uh, chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, from God's anger through him? So back to that question I was asking myself earlier, is God angry at me? In Christ, God is not angry. You don't have to worry in Christ about death any longer, and you don't have to worry about God's anger. You've been saved from it. Why? Because God's not angry in character. He loves you, and his anger is only meant as restoration in that relationship. Amen. We're going to begin moving into communion here. And as we've been doing throughout this series, every time we do communion, there's going to be a response question for you. And during the communion time, either before or after you come up to the tables here, we would love for you to go to one of these other tables on the side of the rooms here and one up in the balcony as well. And to respond in writing to the question that's going to be up on the screen and then put that response in the bowl. You don't have to put your name on it. And then next week, it's going to be added to our artwork over here. We've got our creative community here. We've got Corey and Sarah working on this beautiful piece of art right now. And that's going to continue to develop over the course of this series as you continue to give your responses at these tables. So the question that I'd like you to respond to has more to do with our human anger. I hope that in this, you, if you needed it, have been able to get a fuller picture of God's character, not as an angry God. But for our response, I do want us to think about our own anger. And that question is, what anger do you need to resolve or to release? To resolve, to lean into and deal with, or to release, you can be done with it now so it doesn't act as a poison inside of you. So come up to the tables, then go over to these other tables and write those responses.
When we come here, we have communion every single week to remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, offering us new life and communion with God, not separation from God. To be in a real relationship with him. So we remember that he's the one who experienced the anger so that we don't have to. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Help us to see and to trust your goodness. Thank you that you love us so much and that daily you have for us grace and mercy and compassion and that you fill our lives with joy as well and with love as well. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, for being our intercessor, for experiencing the worst of everything so that we don't have to. And I thank you for the presence of your spirit here in this place. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the true character of who you are? Amen.